You're listening to Upside Down Podcast, an ecumenical conversation at the intersection of justice, spirituality, and culture. We've created this space with you in mind. So join us for unscripted conversations on God's upside down kingdom. Biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble makes it plain. Born and bred in a land of patriarchy, the Bible abounds in male imagery and language. For centuries, interpreters have explored and exploited this male language to articulate theology and to instruct human beings, female and male, in who they are, what rules they should play, and how they should behave. So harmonious has seemed this association of scripture with sexism, of faith with culture, that only a few have even questioned it. Welcome to episode 63 of Upside Down Podcast, and our topic today is the gender and ethnicity of God, and our guest, Dr. Christina Cleveland, is one of the few who have questioned how cultural perceptions of race and gender impact our experience with scripture and of the divine. Christina, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. It's a pleasure and a joy to be here. Yeah. Would you mind um, just letting our listeners know a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what sort of work you're doing? Sure. I am an activist and a public theologian and a social psychologist and a writer and kind of a Renaissance woman who's doing everything I can to stimulate spiritual imaginations beyond what we think we know about the divine. And um, for the last 11 years, I've been in academia. I've been a professor. I just recently resigned from my position at Duke at the Divinity School. And now I am devoting all of my breathing and walking and moving and energy towards um, addressing this question of how do we imagine the divine and how does that impact how we see ourselves, how we see our neighbor? whose opinion matters, whose bodies matter, whose lives matter. And mm-hmm. for a long time, my work has focused um, really um, explicitly on race. And I've asked a lot of those questions around race. And more recently, I've been integrating race and gender and looking at how a more intersectional kind of integrated look at at our perceptions of the divine impacts us. Yeah. That's me. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. So I wonder, how would you describe the spiritual background of your childhood? And then maybe follow up to that, how was that entangled with the way you thought about your own femininity and ethnicity? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because everything's coming up to the surface right now because I just moved um, from North Carolina where I was at Duke to um, Oakland when I was born in Oakland and raised nearby just about 15, 20 miles away in Fremont. And so this is kind of like returning to my stomping grounds. And um, it's interesting because everywhere I go around Oakland, I see images of my childhood spiritual community. Um, I'm kind of a unique black woman in that about half of my spiritual formation probably took place in black Pentecostal churches. My family has a long tradition in black Pentecostalism. And um, many of the churches here in Oakland uh, were founded by my family members or led by at some point. It's yeah, the legacy is runs deep. But because my parents moved us to Fremont in the early 80s, I also had another big formation that was kind of around white evangelicalism because Fremont, which is an Oakland suburb, um, 
was prominently white back then. And so we went to um, white evangelical churches and I can, you know, talk about that too. And what's really interesting is that both spaces, both black and white spaces, really, um, for the most part, didn't challenge the idea that God was white or male. Um, and even in some of the black churches, you would see a white male God. And as I've done research, I've seen um, that that my experience is not in common. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, growing up, it was always implicitly understood that God is a white man. And I got that um, more explicitly, I'd say, in white churches. You know, I, my, one of my earliest childhood memories was um, going to a vacation Bible school at a white church in our town, not a church we attended, but we were just kind of like going to the VBS. And my teacher called me a nigger. I was five years old. Um, and I didn't know what the word meant, but I knew it was bad. And I knew it was it was about me. And the one thing I understood made that made me distinct from all my classmates was my skin color. Mm-hmm. And so at a very early age, quite explicitly in white churches, I understood that I was different and that difference wasn't a good thing. Um, and I really, as I've gotten older, have connected that to conceptions of the divine um, and the idea that if God is white, then people who are white are closer to the divine, are more holy, are more valuable. And that was shown me as a child over and over and over and over again. That example was my first explicit example, but one of many. Um, And my work now has been kind of connecting the idea with the action. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So I wonder, how did we in Christianity arrive at a male perception of God, even while we insist God's neither male nor female? But I mean, like you just shared, it's it's not just one, one you know, sect of Christianity, but it's a pretty broad stroke. We have just kind of arrived at this idea that God is male. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean... I'm not really a conspiracy theorist, (laughs) Um, but when you start looking at history and research, it seems to be that there was an intentional patriarchal squashing of the divine feminine or feminine wisdom. And it happened at every step of the game um, in terms of the story or the arc of Christianity. You know, you see it in the... um, in the garden um, with Eve and Eve being vilified and um, seen as less than Adam. Um, And just even the way that story is told um, is very diminishing of feminine wisdom and the divine feminine. But then you also see it in the ways in which, you know, throughout the Old Testament, for example, there are so many examples of God engaging with the people in very feminine ways, both implicitly and explicitly, um, wisdom being feminine and Jesus quoting wisdom over and over again, um, yet those words being attributed to Jesus, Jesus, who was seen as a man rather than to the divine feminine aspect of the Christian God. And so... Um, you start when you start to connect the dots, 
and read books like When God Was a Woman, which is a book that I read earlier this year. Um, another book, When God Was a Black Woman, which is a book I read last month. You start to see the voice was always there. It's just been silent. Hmm. Um, and then now you now you look at you know the the effects, right? Like. I forget what the number is, but like 97% of senior pastors are male, even though a lot of denominations would say, oh, anybody can be a pastor. I mean, there are plenty of denominations that don't say that, but right. there are lots that, that do say that. Oh, we love female pastors. We just don't hire any. <laughs> <laughs> um, we just don't see them as quite qualified, mm-hmm. you know, quite as qualified, or they just don't have what it takes, whatever what it takes means, or, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so... I think um, patriarchy is a really powerful force in our world and patriarchy often joins forces with religion, just like oppression joins forces with religion. You see it in South Africa, you see it here in the United States with slavery and how Christianity was used to support it. You see it around the Holocaust. I mean, it's so interesting how much forces of oppression collaborate with religion. And so I think it's not surprising mm. that it's done that patriarchy and Christianity have been partners. Yeah. 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 Christina, I'm wondering for um, our listeners who this might be a new idea for, and like, you know, they're thinking, but, but scripture says like our father, like from a very, for a very mm. like basic, like how do you yeah. unpack that and explain kind of. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so there are a couple of ways that I would um, explain that. One is that um, even Jesus's words have been translated. Right. (laughs) And one of the things that's been so powerful for me is that, um, you know, recognizing that the Bible is never just read, it's always interpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as we would like to, and this, this kind of comes from my social psychology background, like we see things as we are, not as they are, mm-hmm. you know, and so we're all everything we do, we're interpreting it, someone comes in, and smiles at me, I can interpret that as, oh, they're so happy to see me. Or I can interpret that as, look at that smug smile. They're so smug. You know, like, it's like everything is about interpretation and what we bring to it. And the same is true for scripture. And one of the things that's been really enlightening for me is just recognizing that Jesus Jesus was Aramaic and Jesus was an Aramaic mystic. And so if you look at Jesus's words in the Aramaic, Um, they look really different than what was translated into the Greek. And that's all we have is what was translated. Uh, That's all we have published uh, widespread. All of Jesus's, everything Jesus said was in Aramaic. And Aramaic is like this incredibly mystical language where it's not like there's no black and white. There's no dualism. So um, everything's open. Everything's wondering. So like, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, our father the actual word in Aramaic that Jesus probably used was abwun. And abwun actually means O birther. Because in in Aramaic, the dichotomy between mother and father is broken down. <laughs> because everything's whole. Every it's a totally different way of thinking than our Western, like very 
um, dualistic, black or white, right or wrong, male or female way of thinking. Yeah. So it's even hard for us to wrap our heads around it. But the word abwoon actually just creates openness and possibility and actually the the way that you breathe and and um in in mystical aramaic which which is which is what Jesus was um the way that you breathe and speak and pronounce abwun is your specific is the specific way that God names you so it's just, so it's different for everyone the way i say abwun is going to be different than the way you say abwun and that difference is God's specific name and like love for us. And so there isn't one way, <laughs> like there is as, as much, it's, it, it allows for so much creativity and personality. So all of that was lost, all of that creativity, all of that um, openness, all that possibility, all that integration was lost when it was translated into Greek because Jesus spoke in Aramaic to people who were Aramaic mystics themselves and understood. And then it was translated into Greek, which is like the language of empire. And Ooh. so very like start, mm -hmm. very yeah. right or wrong, very, very hierarchical. And so you start to see, if you go back and look at what mystical Aramaic scholars um, believe Jesus was closer to what Jesus actually said when he said the Lord's Prayer. It's very different. So it's not our father, it'd actually be more like O Birther. <laughs> Which then so creates cool. questions around like, well, is it really our father? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or or did or did Greek need it to be our father? Because Greek is black and white, kind of like English. Right. You know, or did the patriarchal forces of Greek, because Greek was the language of empire, it was all about hierarchy, it was all about slave or free. Um, and so there had to be, there had to be a hierarchy. So that's the one thing I would say, um, just recognizing that we interpret everything that's in scripture, and there's a possible, there's a strong possibility that it's almost like a game of telephone. Maybe not like when we're little kids. It's like by the yeah. time it keeps getting interpreted and passed on, you start to wonder what was the original message. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it's like, well, it's been translated a bajillion times, first into Greek, um, and then translated from Greek into English by King James, mm -hmm. <laughs> who was right. like a patriarchal mon monarch, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, who had his own ulterior motives on what needed to be, and it's not like the it's not like the translators and interpreters had complete free, you know, reign to do their creative work. It's like no, King James is like off with your head if, you, if I don't like the translation, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, literally off with your head. There's like you know a guillotine right next door um, to the palace, and so there's that. And the second thing I would say is another thing that was really helpful to me, especially around just Jesus is that the Gospel of John was written two to three generations after the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we call the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic Gospels. Um, and so they were, they were all written by people who um, were contemporaries of Jesus, and they were written within like a, like a handful of years after Jesus's crucifixion. Um, the Gospel of John was written probably about 70 years later. Um, and the difference between those two is that God is only referred to as Father like less than 10 times amongst all of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
But then 70 years later, God has referred to his father over 70 times in the gospel of John. Hmm. Wow. And so you see, and what, what I know about the way um, organizations form is that grassroots organizations are able to be egalitarian for about a generation, but usually they fall into hierarchy over time because hierarchy is a lot more efficient. And so what might start out as like a all power to the people, kind of everyone's, everyone has a voice, you know, that mm-hmm. this and that usually starts to conform to the societal norms within a couple generations. And so looking at that distance, a lot of scholars would say, well, I think God became more father over that time as patriarchy started to collaborate more and more with this like fledgling grassroots Christianity. And it became easier to keep people in line, to keep the movement mm-hmm. going, to fundraise, whatever the needs are when, we, when we're not doing things that are um, disrupting the societal standards. And in that society, you know, women were practically, practically um, property. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Men had power. Men, the men had the power. And so, oh, Bertha is not going to work. Right. It's got to be old father now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so good. Thank you so much for that. I just, I think that. It was, it blew my mind. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> it kind of blew my mind and I like, I'm going to start throwing. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> to be honest. Um, Lindsay I'm, and I can relate to that feeling. <laughs> yeah. Because it was just like, wait a second. And then the deeper I went and the deeper I went and the more I went into the like Old Testament and the stories in the Old Testament and like, wait, Yahweh told you to annihilate who, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, let's like start looking at these cultures. Oh, the cultures that Yahweh told you to annihilate are the cultures that worship the divine feminine God. Oh, that's interesting. You know, like, it's just like, you start to just be like, wow, there's a lot going on here. And I've been in the church my whole life and no one's ever talked mm-hmm. about Ever. I wonder, Christina, could you talk a little bit about, I mean, one of the sort of titles you ascribe to is a public theologian. And what I've noticed in following you mm-hmm. on social media and being a part of your um, Patreon is you're working these ideas out as you yourself come upon them and, and unfold them. And and so I, I assume that's what you mean by public theologian, but I wonder, could you just talk a little bit about like what that experience is like for you to have been in the church your whole life and then to come across these ideas that make you want to throw things and then to work them out in a public sphere? Like, what is that process like for you? Yeah, it's really scary, <laughs> <laughs> especially Aww. because I'm an academic, you right. know, it's, it's scary in the best way, right? I feel like it's liberating. It's breaking down false ideas about what it means to um, to be a leader, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I think I've been taught to be a leader means to have it all together, to have everything yeah. figured out, and especially yeah. in academia, especially in academia, right? And I do a lot of public speaking, and the whole point is to have the TED Talk. It's tidy. You got your research. You got your graphs. Like, you got your you anticipating right. questions. <laughs> everything is clear and concise and um, and certain. And I think that's that's a really patriarchal way of going through the world um, where my my offering to the world is not about opening up dialogue and connection. It's about dominating. Mm -hmm. 
It's about showing you that I've figured it out and that you need to follow me. And the best way to, to, to your liberation is to um, mm-hmm. obey, <laughs> essentially. O- uh, obey what I believe, o- you know, conform to what I'm doing. And I think um, as I have been become more interested in the divine feminine aspects of God, I have wanted to practice the divine feminine, not just talk about the divine feminine. Um, and I'm realizing that practicing it means letting go of certainty, of knowing everything, of um, always having my T's crossed and my eyes mm-hmm. dotted um, and really just being a lot more vulnerable. And so that's scary for me because I feel like I've been taught the mm-hmm. opposite. But it also is what I think theology should be. I think um, one of the reasons why I left academia and, you know, when I was at a divinity school, um, so academic theology is because um, it's so hard in that space. I think there it's maybe, I don't know. I mean, I, I found it really hard in that space to create, to stimulate actual theological discussions because it was all about domination Mm -hmm. rather than connection you know like I want to write this book and write it in the most esoteric way so that when you read it you're struggling to understand (laughs) it because I'm so much smarter (laughs) than you (laughs) and I'm going to publish it in a place where no one can access it without two PhDs Mm -hmm. in theology Um, and then it'll all it'll be about who has access and I just think theology only makes sense if if it resonates with people yeah. on the ground. Yes. And that's not a new right. idea. Like I'm, I wish I could say I give up <laughs> that, but really it's, it's womanist. So it's like black feminist scholar, black feminist, feminist theologians are called the womanists. Um, and then also mujeristas who are like Latinx indigenous feminist theologians. Both of them have really rich um, writings and teachings and theologies around what does theology look like to the mamacita who's working three jobs, cleaning three different people's houses in order to make ends meet for their for her family that just moved here undocumented from a distressed a distressful a distressed mm-hmm. country, right? Like. Who is the divine mm-hmm. to that person? How does the divine show up in that person's life? What are the practices that sustain that person? And I think bec- the problem of white male God is that oh, the reason why our conception of God is this distant white male who's like the CEO of a Fortune 100 company is because those are essentially the people who've been right. doing theology. Yes. And so the more we can engage with and so that's why it's been so important for me to have a patreon you know I, I publish so much on my social media so anyone can access that even if they don't have the means or to be a patron um because I feel like it's that's the way theology should be done and it's the like feminist way to mm-hmm. do theology. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah yeah that's really good <laughs> I wonder, could you, we've touched, uh, we've, we've sort of hinted this direction, but I'd like to hear you talk about just what heals inside women when God is imaged as female or feminine. And then also, I think mm. what heals inside of men too, when they can see God as. Yeah. 
Totally. Yeah. yeah, because that's the thing is like we've all been mm-hmm. injured by this right. white male God. We've been. And so last fall, I went on like a 400 mile walking pilgrimage across um, central France um, to see images of black female God. Um, and I can say personally that walking up to those images that have many of them have been around for hundreds of years um some even over a thousand years was incredibly healing to me for a few reasons one i was able to reclaim the motherhood of god Mm. which is all about imminence um it's so interesting and i write about this i'm working on a book now um about God being a black woman. And what's so interesting to me is growing up, I was always told, like, especially around like um, um, Advent, right? Like God, Emmanuel, God is with us. And I remember as a young person and even as a young adult, trying to force myself to believe that God was with me, that God was present, that God was imminent, but I just couldn't <laughs> mm-hmm. because there were so many other forces in my church life that taught me that I had to mm-hmm. get it together mm-hmm. for God to be near, or I had to repent for God to be near, or I had to be healthy for God to be near. And so it it was, I think that's because we've only had a masculine view of the divine. Um, whereas the mother, the mother is all about staying up with you all night when you have chicken pox. <laughs> the mother is all about poopy diapers. And the mother is all about running to you when you're screaming. And the mother does not get grossed out by you puking. <laughs> um, and so walking up to these feminine images of God. And for me, it was so powerful mm-hmm. to see black female images of God because I was able to mirror, mm-hmm. see myself in them um, was so powerful. And on, for example, one day on the pilgrimage, I got super sick. I had done um, like a long walk the day before and had not really, it's like, I was like, oh, I'll just walk across France in <laughs> November and December and then it's the mountains. And I had like, I had like a, <laughs> like a windbreaker, you know. So I'm like, ah, I need to get a little bit more um gear. But I my first walk was like 15 miles and I got I got sick and then um the next day I woke up and I was felt so sick, but I knew that only 12 miles away there was Our Lady mm-hmm. of the Sick in Vichy, France. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I feel horrible right now, but if I can just get to her I think I can start to believe that God cares about mm. my sickness uh, because I've been taught, I'm, I'm told I'm right. supposed to believe that, but I've also been taught about a God who's distant and is like, can't be bothered. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. You have a cold. I got like, I got like stuff to do, you know? <laughs> um, or you're sick. Just take some cough drops and keep right. going. Cause we don't have, you know, like you don't, you don't get to be human. You don't get to be human today. Like we need you yeah. to go work. I'm the capitalist God, right? It's like, you know, and so I did, I was just like, yeah. And so this, this particular Black Madonna, um, Our Lady of the Sick, Vichy is known for its like healing waters because there are all these springs. And so people for hundreds of years have gone to Vichy to go to the healing waters and also to like pray to her, you know? And so it was just so cool to 
to experience like this is exactly how I feel with my mom like when I'm sick I can be like mom like and she's not she's not like oh you need to just pull through it you know she's like I'm coming (laughs) you know I'm like I'm a you know like a mom you know like most moms healthy moms right and so um I think that's been huge for me I also think that thinking of God as female has really changed the way that I think about leadership power collaboration um, control. Um, so much of masculinity in our culture mm. is toxic because it has, when I would define it as toxic, simply because it hasn't been in conversation with femininity. Like kind of going back to the um, mystic Aramaic, um, everything's supposed to be whole. Everything's supposed to belong. Everything's supposed to be connected. And so masculinity in and of itself isn't bad. Right. You know, like it's, there are so many wonderful aspects of masculinity but when it's not partnered with femininity, it becomes really toxic. And so allowing the divine feminine to raise up in my own life and starting to see God as as female has helped me to make peace with God as father um, because it has um, changed my conception of God as father. When, whereas before it was all about like control and, punishment, you better stay in, you better, you, you know, mm-hmm. you better stay in your lane. Um, and those things aren't often explicitly said, but they're really implicitly communicated in powerful ways. And so it's been really healing for me to begin to reintegrate, gosh, what does a healthy masculinity look like? And how can I begin to see the divine in that way? And the divine is both transcendent and imminent. The, the, the divine as kind of this philosophical idea of love and also this very practical love in action. It's both. Um, God is so much bigger than me and God is also right inside me. Mm. And I think before I could really understand that God is right here wiping my snotty nose, I couldn't understand that God being big and vast was also a good thing. Mm. It just seemed like a bad thing. Um, so it's been, it's been so healing and it's been so good for men and women and, and not gender non-conforming mm-hmm. folks and everyone, you know, I think for people to kind of break down the, really it's the idolatry yeah. of God is a man, yeah. as God is a white man. Oh, that's so good. Christina, um, I know Lizzie has so many questions, but I can't help but jump in and selfishly ask a question because I've learned just so much from your work and I'm so grateful that oh my you God. opened Thank it you. up to, to all of us. Um, I'm just really grateful. Mm. But something that has been really powerful to me was this imagery that we see in Matthew um, and in another gospel, but just when Jesus compares himself to a mother hen, um, like Mm. being so eager to gather her chicks under her wings and um, Mm. just wondering if, if you have any take on, um, on that imagery, because that is just something that has really, 
I just can't stop thinking about it ever since I kind of dug in and was reading about it. Um, and just, yeah, just kind of wondering if you have any, any wisdom to throw at that. Cause I just feel like you've been, yeah. you've been taking us to church. You've been taking us to like divinity school <laughs> and then this conversation. <laughs> so. Well, I feel like that imagery is why I kind of think it's a conspiracy to stomp out the feminine in God, because Jesus over and over again uses imagery like that. And you never hear sermons on that. Right. <laughs> um, it's almost like it was never said. And I think that's where, like, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense when people say, you know, Jesus was feminine. You know, Jesus offered us an, an example, maybe not like the only example, but an example of what it means when the masculine and the feminine come together mm. in one. Um, and I, I mean, I love that passage too, because it really, I think it communicates um, who Jesus is and forces us to reckon with why Jesus has been, Jesus's like say death on the cross has been used to tell people that, you know, God, God loves you only because God can love anybody mm. <laughs> or yeah. like God, God is able to stand your presence because Jesus took the, took the price or took the punishment for you, you know? Um, and so it, I think the, that, that verse and others where Jesus is explicitly talking about kind of like. I'm our lady of the sick. Come to me, no matter where you're at, no matter who you are, no matter what ailment you might have, whether it's spiritual or physical, I'm gathering you and I'm holding you close and I'm protecting you. I think those passages really force me to rethink so many of like the theologies of the cross that are really just used to dominate and control and silence. Mm. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I'll let Lindsay get back to. <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> There's a lot of different directions we could go. I, I think what strikes me, um, just in this conversation and in following your work too, that we haven't explicitly said is it's both an internal work and it's an external sort of outward work that that you're doing and that I think is required mm -hmm. of all of us. And so even just. I mean, I think some people could look at your work and say, well, of mm. course, as a black woman, seeing a black Madonna would be moving for you. But I think what what white folks don't often realize is what we hinted at earlier, which is my view of the divine and the feminine and God um, as a white man, like that has also deeply affected me in negative ways. Right. And so. It's not just mm -hmm, that you need mm -hmm. to see that because you're a black woman. It's also that I need to see that as a white woman and that our brothers who are white and black and brown and all the different, you know, we all need to see that because we've all been mm -hmm. deeply affected by what you laid out earlier in terms of the patriarchy and the way that um, the white male God has been esteemed as, as, as the only way and don't question it, <laughs> you know, and when you do, then you, you're no longer welcome here. So I think it's just yeah. important to say that like there are things happening inside of us um, before we realize them when we're taking in that imagery. But then as we become aware of what we're taking in, then we can undo that and, and 
and sort of like sit in and soak in that more inward work of what does it mean to think of God as mother? What does it mean to think of God as black? Um, and so I just think that's important to kind of note. Yeah, especially, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so powerful um, for so many reasons. One, I mean, if you look at, and this goes beyond the scope of this podcast um, conversation, but if you look at the way um, powers organized in our society, white, male, middle-class, straight, um, cisgendered, Christian, English-speaking males Mm -hmm. have, are at the top of the ladder. Um, And then like, I mean, oppression, patriarchy, white supremacy, like they're all, it's, so predictable right and so the whole the whole social ladder in our society is organized according to those so to those factors and so the closer you are to the top the more power you Mm -hmm. have and the better your life outcomes um and then everyone else falls into place somewhere along those lines right like you might be you might be white but you might be female right or you might be white but you might be lgbtq or you might be white but you might be poor or you Mm -hmm. might be black but you're male, right? And so like, you're, there's kind of a pecking order. Black women, and I would probably argue indigenous women as well, are probably yeah. at the bottom of that, <laughs> of that structure. And like I said, it's so mm-hmm. predictable because black trans women who violate everything that's at the top, <laughs> um, are going to make an average of less than $4,000 this year in terms of income mm-hmm. and are the most, um, have the highest rate mm-hmm. of, have the shortest life expectancy. The average life expectancy of a black trans woman is 34 years old, which is actually less than it wow. was for an enslaved black woman in 1832. Wow. So it's very predictable, like who is seen as, important and powerful and divine and holy and who's not. And so I think us challenging the perception of white male God Mm -hmm. means we must embrace God as a black woman Mm -hmm. in order to really challenge the top and to flip, to flip the dynamic. And it may, I mean, like if you just think about black women are seen as both women and black and black in our society is lazy, dirty, um, violent, angry, and women in our society are seen as weak, selfish, overly emotional, untrustworthy. And so if you put those together to actually truly not just face, but embrace God as a black woman, you have to deconstruct and divest yourself of so much social programming And then start Mm -hmm. to ask the question, how have I been impacted by that social programming? How does that impact how I move through the world? Whose perspective I automatically see as valid? Whose credentials are legitimate? Who's worth giving money to or trusting or following? Um, Who's worth going out on a limb for? Who should I vote for? Who, who should I confront when other people are voting for people? <laughs> you know, like, um, and so it's just, yeah. it starts to ask, because we've just been so deeply programmed 
um, to value what's at the top and to see that as sacred, really. So to support it, to value it, to protect it um, in all these like very subtle ways. You know, most people, most millennials of any race who have any experience with Christianity or another organized religion would be like, oh yeah, for sure, God's right. not a white man. Ex- like consciously right. they would say that. But if you look at their behavior, <laughs> right, right. it's like obvious that God's a white man. That's a really good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's so good. We have work to do. <laughs> We all do. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, and that, but, but the invitation, this is what I love about the divine feminine is that it's yeah. like, we all have work to do and we all belong. Like, it's not like, mm. oh, you better get it together so you can finally join my tribe. It's like, I see you where you're at. I love you. I'm mm-hmm. not trying to control you. This is an invitation for your liberation. It's an invitation for your freedom and your healing come to me, all you who are weary, as opposed to like, see, look at you, you're the worst. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's a completely different way of thinking about religion and spirituality. Um, It's not control, it's invitation. And I love that. It's not mastery, it's mystery. And I just love that. Everyone's welcome. Right. You said earlier, it's the difference. It's domination versus connection. And I just think that Mm -hmm. that's such a stark contrast. But also, like you're saying, it's a beautiful invitation. It's an invitation to connect with the creator of all things and knowing that we have value and that we're cared for and we're welcome and we're loved as opposed to that domineering, top down, Mm -hmm. get in line, conform which is what so many of us were taught mm-hmm. and still are being taught. You know, it's um, it's insidious in that way too. Like it just trickles in without us even realizing it because of the culture. Like mm-hmm. We're all breathing the air, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, just for your readers who have a background in Christianity or who like, you know, have a concept of sin, you know, as I've done more research on just, you know, kind of like teachings of the divine feminine, you know, that's really changed the way that I even think about sin or brokenness or whatever as a, you know, cause I used to, I was kind of taught to be like, Oh, you did something bad. You need to fix it. Um, so that God can like accept you or, or God fixed it for you because just like kind of like a, basically your sin is shameful mm-hmm. right, right. <laughs> um, as opposed to the divine feminine teaching, which is more like, Oh, any sort of sin or brokenness or like, ah, oh, you know, I, I, that wasn't my best self. That wasn't my best version of me is really just a, oh, it's not sin. It's not shame. It's just like, oh, that's just me. That's just, that's just evidence that now it's time to connect with the divine. I just need mm-hmm. some healing. I just need some touch. I just need to connect. That's it. That's all it, that's all it signals <laughs> is that there is healing and connection and openness available for me if I just turn towards it, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I try to, every morning I do some meditation, it's like all the love, all the power, all the acceptance, all the wisdom in the world is always available to me all the time. I just have to open the door of my heart to receive it. And so sin, I put that in scare quotes, is just another 
signal that that is available to me. Mm. And I just need to open the door of my heart to receive it. Mm. And, and so even as we're on this journey and we're starting to see like, oh man, I really have been programmed by this white male God. And I can see how I've harmed other people, you know, right. <laughs> like the last thing I think God as a black woman would want is for us to be like, ah, oh, you terrible person. Look at you. You can try to control them. You judge them. You lashed out at them, you know, whatever. Or, you know, you invested in all these horrible companies. I don't know. Right. right. I, I think that's the last thing God as a black woman invites us to. It's really just like, okay, I need to open wide the door of my heart to receive love and wisdom and instruction and healing. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's all this awareness is bringing me to awareness of this possibility of connection, not awareness of shame, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's like really exciting to me Yeah. <laughs> as an Enneagram one. That's really exciting <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so one last question as we're in the midst of Advent, I wonder, um, you know, as we prepare to celebrate Christmas and what we view as the coming of Christ to earth in a human form, how has your experience of Advent and the celebration of Christmas, how does it look different than it did before you started this journey? Hmm. That's a really good question. I think... Um, I think I can believe a lot more that God is near in this season. And it takes less of my own willful conjuring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I think I can. I think I can. God is near. God is near. Now I can more naturally see evidence of it. And I think um, that's because as I have deepened my um, connection to the divine feminine, I've been able to be a lot more present because it's less about mastery and more about mystery um, it's less about perfection and more about just being present where I am. And so I'm I'm more able to notice um, the divine nearness in everyday occurrences, whether it's nature, like I see a butterfly, or whether it's one teeny tiny way that a justice organization is making headway. Um, and I'm able to celebrate that um, in ways that I don't think I was able to before because I was so focused on how far we still have to go, mm. um, that I couldn't see how far we've come. Um, I think another way that it really impacts, um, my celebration of Christmas and Advent is I'm just a lot more joyful because I'm like, when I recognize that God is a black woman, that there's some, that, that the divine gets me, knows me, truly knows the hairs on my head like that's not just a thing I'm supposed to believe but like she's been there she gets it um and she's acting on my loving behalf I don't have to fear all the time and I don't have to be in vigilance mode all the time and that frees me to joy and so Christmas is just an incredibly joyful season where I can notice maybe what still needs to be done, but also really savor um, what is mm. and the, the relationships that are unfolding in front of me and the opportunities that are unfolding before me. So I, there's a deep, there's a deep peace that allows me to then engage in this season of peace <laughs> on a deeper level. Yeah. That's I love that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that.
Yeah. Sure, sure. So for our um, listeners who have just had their minds like totally blown after this conversation, where can they go to, <laughs> to support you and um, how, how can they get more involved in kind of linking arms with the work that you're doing? Yeah, yeah. So right now, especially since I um, resigned from my position in academia, the um, my main teaching community and also commu- um, source of support is Patreon. So I would love it if people would hop on there and become patrons. Um, and I publish a few times a month and there's like an amazing community there of like-minded folks who are also asking these questions. And that's that's probably been the most fun thing for me is to see other people connecting with each other um, on in that space. So that's one option. I'm on Patreon, just Christina Cleveland. And then also, um, you know, following on social media, I'll have a book coming out in um, early 2021 um, that I would love for people to be excited to read and share. But um, yeah, that or bring me to come speak at your school or your church. Um, if you're a church will let me. <laughs> but yeah, just hop, just join the community. You know, it's really fun to be um, participating in a, in a community of people that are just asking some of these questions and trying to connect it to their justice work. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's really fun. Yeah. So thanks for asking. Yeah, I'd love for your listeners. Yes, and to we join would in. love that too. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for joining us. For those who are listening, you can learn more about what we do at UpsideDownPodcast.com or we're Upside Down Podcast on Instagram. And we have a listener group on Facebook as well. But Christina, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing your wisdom and your just insight. Um, we're really grateful to um, have had this time together. So thank you so much. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Happy yes. holidays. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Christina. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Upside Down Podcast. New episodes are released on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. The Upside Down Podcast is created by Lindsay Wallace, Kayla Craig, Elisa Molina, and Gina Siliberto. Our show notes are written by Lana Smith. Johnny Craig and Tess Malone edit the episodes, and our theme music is Dreamers Act by DJ Sean P. And of course, our monthly patrons make everything possible.